Hello, and welcome to the Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I have the great good fortune to be joined by Michael Morpurgo, who's in town for the London Book Fair 2017. Michael is the author of more than 100 books. He's a former children's laureate. Um, he's probably best known for the phenomenal success of War Horse, which I guess hangs around his neck like a particularly benign albatross. Um, <laughs> but today we're here to talk about his new project, and primarily. Michael, you're taking on The Wizard of Oz. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, I can. I'd like to say it was my own idea. It wasn't. I work with a wonderful illustrator called Emma chichester Clark, who is passionately fond of dogs. So it starts with something as silly as that. And then my publisher, Angeline Murtagh at HarperCollins, happened to mention that they'd had a conversation about the possibility of reworking The Wizard of Oz because kids, by and large, don't read the book anymore because there is this movie which got in the way of the book and because the book is rather long and not edited very well. She said, could we look at it again, particularly with Toto in mind, the little dog, for um, Emma Chichester-Clark, who would like to include her dog. I mean, this is how, how perverse it is, the origins of making a story. Well, I've got to be honest... I never cared for the story that much on film, mostly because there is this girl who will sing from time to time monotonously and skip. And it, I see there'll be people in the audience fainting with horror. <laughs> it's it, awful. Well, I just, as a, as a boy seeing it for the first time, I thought this isn't for me. This is uh, this is girl stuff. I'm did you did you come to it through the film? Absolutely. As a boy? I, I sort of think. Almost everyone comes to The Wizard of Oz through that film, which, of course, in many ways is completely wonderful. And the story uh, is is extraordinary. At its simplest, it's beautiful. And actually, there's nothing wrong with the songs at all. It's just that you, you hear them too often, you know. But what is true is there is no book anymore which children read. So I thought, well, that is interesting. And then I looked at the part Toto played in the story, the original story, and actually in the film, and the answer is, Toto gets carried around a lot, has no real part to play in the story other than to love Dorothy. That's sort of it. Dorothy loves Toto, Toto loves Dorothy. There's a lot of cuddling and they have this adventure together, but she has the adventure. He doesn't do much. He doesn't contribute much. So I thought, well, yes, there is a point here then. Maybe this could be livened up. There could be something new and interesting. So in my version of the story, it is Toto who tells it. It's told through the dog's eye, and he's a proper dog. So he's passionate about sausages and chasing mice and rats. You get a sense that there is a proper dog at the centre of the story, which seemed to me to be quite important. Yes, he loves Dorothy, and Dorothy loves him, but there is a proper dog who have, who have proper dog passions, you know? And I thought, well, yeah, I, I can make that... That, that dog live off the page. So that's what I did. And have you... I mean, I'm not sure how much the film took liberties with Baum's source material. I mean, have you started from the Baum book and then oh, yes. taken, I started, li- taken liberties with that? <clears throat> I started with the Baum book, um, which is wonderful until about three-quarters of the way through. Um, and then it sort of goes on and on and on. It has several endings, and none of them are very good. And very satisfying. I won't go into why. You'll have to read my version of the story to to decide. But I felt it dribbled away. And when that happens at the end of a story, I think it's um, 
it, it lose you lose the the will to live really you just want to stop it at a certain point so i did that i also changed the character of dorothy to some extent she is both girl and boy in other words she's not as girly as she was in the film i wanted this to be a character that everyone could identify with <coughs> regardless of whether you're boy or girl so she is um a very strong character and feisty and i I mean, she was anywhere, but I've made her more so. And have you made it sort of frightening? I mean, I'm just trying to imagine Toto as a small dog coming up against, say, you know, the munchkins in the first instance and then the winged monkeys later on. Toto does what all good sort of terrier-type dogs do, growls and fights back. And so you have this wonderful moment, which is a good moment, when he challenges Lion. And, of course, Lion is terribly sweet-natured, just has got a big roar, and it's Toto who actually reveals this. So I, Toto has has all the attributes of a, a somewhat aggressive little terrier who really won't be told what to do or what to think, but fiercely loyal to not just to Dorothy, but to all Dorothy's friends. And anyone who attacks Dorothy's friends is in for trouble. Very passionate, by the way, I should mention this, about sausages, particularly green sausages. Of course, which we Greens. ordinarily steer clear. Yes, but not... Not in the Wizard of Oz. In certain places, the sausages are all green, so he loves green sausages. Well, that's something to look out for. This, I mean, it's interesting. It seems interesting to me. You do not only your own original storytelling, but you you are very happy reversioning other people's work, aren't you? I mean, I was just saying last night, my daughter pulled out from her school bag a copy of Gawain and the Green Knight, as retold yes. by you. Yeah. I mean, what what is it you look for in something when you're going to reversion it. Do you feel there are some stories that are sort of lost and that children today need a new version of? I, I do, really. And I feel they've also been, at a certain time, they've been oversimplified for children and rather patronised children. So, for instance, there was a time when the King Arthur stories were around in my childhood. It was a wonderful edition by Roger Lancelot Green, which was in Puffins, um, which is fine, except that it avoids the difficulty at the heart of the story of King Arthur. And I think it's, it's when you realise that these ancient tales have lasted because they, are, they have a really strong heart. Now, with King Arthur, we know perfectly well that at the heart of the story, there is an unspoken thing that happens. Certainly in the 1950s, it wasn't put into children's books. And this is that in the old tale, and it's Greek in its depth, really, the tragedy is that Arthur unknowingly slept with his half-sister, the result of which was this son, Mordred, who ends up on the battlefield and father kills son, and son mortally wounds father. It's an extraordinary story. But if you leave out of it the seed of that tragedy, then sort of what's the point of it? Then it's just a story for kids. And the point of all these stories, whether it's Gawain or it's Arthur or it's Robin Hood, is that they're not just for kids. They're stories for everyone. Take Robin Hood. So what's happened to Robin Hood? Again, movies have taken over. And you know, I can't remember his last movie or not, which all ends up, doesn't it, with Robin Hood and Maid Marian being married by Sean Connery in the forest and it all ends happily ever after. Well, excuse me, rubbish. The great old poem, the old Fitz, 
what are they, 14th century or something, go back to. What actually happened was, in the earlier stories, which are the best stories, is that he ends up in a convent with an extremely wicked abbess who is leeching him to death. And as he dies, and he knows he's dying, he says to little John, lift me, I want to fire my last arrow, and where that arrow falls, there I want to be buried. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. I remember being in floods of tears. Aged, it's it's aged extraordinary. Why do you need a wedding and Sean Connery? You don't. And that's what they do. They turn, they twist and turn these things around and take the heart out of the story. And the reason these stories have lasted thousands and thousands and thousands of years is because they are about, they are timeless and they're about young and they're about old. They're actually quite often about growing up as well, growing out of innocence and as indeed the Arthur story is. So that's why I do it. They're a wonderful challenge. And I tell you what it's also about. You know perfectly well that an awful lot of artists train themselves by copying old masters. Well, that's what you do when you retell these stories. It's not exactly copying, but it is going back to the true masters. Most of them, of course, we have no idea who they were. When I retold Aesop's fables, well, we don't even know Aesop wrote most of his fables. But nonetheless, to go back to these extraordinarily succinct stories and retell them in a language which children are likely to enjoy today is a great challenge, and I love doing it, and it's very good for my writing. But you also talk in an odd way. I mean, one thinks, you know, Michael Morpurgo, children's writer, if that's a label you accept, and yet you're <clears> describing <throat> turning books that have been essentially, you know, disemboweled for the purposes of children yes. into something more adult. Yes. I mean, do you feel there's anywhere you kind of can't go that there are elements of stories that that are too dark or that are too adult in terms of containing sexual themes. I mean, how do you walk that line? It's a difficult line to walk, but it must be walked. I mean, the truth is that children today are more aware of the adult world than, than they ever were. So if I can take my own childhood back in the 40s and 50s, it was um, protected. I mean, I'm, what do I, lower middle class little boy in London going to the primary school down the street. There was life on the streets. You found out about stuff. But by and large, your parents managed to envelop you in a, a comfort zone so that there was nothing too frightening happening to you. You had the, the radio maybe in the house and then you went out to play. That was what children did. So the if you like, the difficulties of this world, whether it's domestic difficulties, whether it's social difficulties, whether it's international difficulties, only came close to you by things you saw in the street. So I'm, I was a, a war baby. I grew up and there were bomb sites around, fantastic to play, and I didn't really know what was going on. No one really talked about it very much. I learned slowly, slowly, slowly. What I didn't have was stuff shoved at me when I was eight years old. This is the Holocaust. There were, I'm sure, things, images on the movies, but you didn't see those things. You were protected from them. Children these days have got it in their bedroom. They can switch on anything they like. So stories have to address those things. You can't dodge around them. But it's also true when you do address them, whether it is violence or war or sex or whatever, it has to be done with great care. Because what you do not wish to do is to traumatise children. But to suggest that the world is this place where everything at the end is tied up with a pink ribbon and Sean Connery comes in and marries everyone is 
sort of ridiculous now. We all understand fairy tales and we like fairy tales to have a happy ending. But there are evil witches out there. And the children know that now. And they know they're out there. They're in the streets. And they're certainly there internationally. They see things on their screens, the images of war now all the time. It seems to be even more important now to have books that give them some insight and understanding into why these things happen, what's the result of these things happening, so that their understanding grows at the same time intellectually as emotionally, so that they come to some sense of this, of the difficulties of the world, of the complexities, and they know pretty soon that there are no neat solutions. So do you think that, I mean, certainly children's stories haven't always been cutesy. I mean, do you think there's a sort of period in the 20th century where children were, as it were, infantilised and everything was rewritten? Because, I mean, Victorian children's material is pretty eye-stretching and obviously the original brothers Grimm going right back were... You know, as the name suggests, but I think at some point we got to we did get to the stage where we felt we really had to protect them for these from these the darker themes that there, there were around, and we came away from Grimm in a sense, and did wrap up things in in in, in cotton wool. I think we are now we have extraordinary writers like you know, Philip Pullman and David Armand who are dealing with who are dealing with the complexities of of doubt and and and, and belief and these things not just for young people, what they've also discovered, and I think lots of children try to have, is that the cusp between being a child and being a grown-up child is pretty blurred now. We do live in the same world. We inhabit the same world. There is no longer a world of the child and a world of the adult. They run into each other. I mean, <laughs> there was a time when children went to their bedrooms and the adults had one sort of way of living of an evening. It doesn't happen anymore. We're all in this thing together. And I think the books are reflecting that now. And so they should. So do you think the landscape of children's writing is now sort of healthier than it was? I mean, we've got an explosion in sort of YA, so-called mm. sort of young adult writing, and we get a lot of adults obviously reading, you know, yeah. sort of I, these crossover books. I think crossover is very important, but it's misunderstood. So, I mean, for me, The Tiger Who Came to Tea is a crossover book. It happens to be about a tiger who sits down at your table and has a cup of tea and gets in the bath and does terrible things. It's funny, but it's a crossover book. Every adult who reads that book loves reading it. It crosses over. And those are the best stories to me, the ones that can cross from the world of childhood imagination to the world of adult understanding and appreciation. It struck me that where the wild things are is, is a very effective poem. <laughs> exactly, absolutely. And um, The Iron Man would be the same. Yeah. You know, we're talking about legends, stories, uh, which, which they do cross over. I almost don't want to use the word, but they, they do, um, they are for, for us all. And the best stories seem to do that. And for me, you mentioned earlier on in your introduction, the, the a book I read some time ago, of War Horse, which remained a children's book for a long time, and it still is. But when the National Theatre took hold of it and made it into this extraordinary play... They were determined, and they're quite right, to seek in this story something which um, was universal. And that's what they've done. So you can go to that theatre and you can see eight-year-olds sitting there with 80-year-olds. And they're interpreting within their families uh, this story through the prism of their own lives, 80-year-old lives and eight-year-old lives. And it seems to me that that's what the, the great thing about that theatre production is that it manages to do that. It manages to include everyone and patronises no one. 
when you're writing sort of for children, I mean, actually, would you, I mean, discussing this this crossover, the universality, what, I mean, would you accept the label children's writer? I mean, I saw you sort of faintly winced when I used it of you even in quotes. I suppose I, I'm, I, like the, I like the phrase, it depends how it's used. I mean, what is wonderful, I have to say, is to come and, and speak to the literary editor of The Spectator about the world of children's books. I don't think this would have happened 20 years ago. Because what has happened is that in the last 20 or 30 years, certainly, I think books um, that children read have begun to mean more to our culture than they, they did before. There is more respect about. Now, there's, there's many reasons for that. Yes, it's the rise of J.K. Rowling and Philip Pullman, and, but it was preceded by remarkable writers like Rosemary Sutcliffe as well. This hasn't happened in, in a hurry. I think there's been a gradual understanding and evaluation that children's literature, good children's literature, is how we become readers. There's no one in this building who works at The Spectator, who loves books, loves words, who didn't start life reading children's books. The vast majority of people can remember one book or two books, which one author, which set them on the road to loving literature. And therefore we all know it's important. And what's really good about the uh, recent years, and I hope the children's laureates have played their own part in this, of raising the awareness, and yes, the prestige of children's books, so that it's accepted as being a serious literary genre, which um, deserves um, attention and respect. So when people say children's writer, it depends who's saying it. If it comes with that thing, oh, well, you write just for children, this is all thing, you write just for children, that's like saying that a primary school teacher is worth less than a professor at university, yeah. which isn't the case. Well, there's also a sense that you're forming a literary sensibility. I mean, that's... Yes, you know, absolutely. Does that give you a special responsibility, morally, in a way that adult writers, or sort of, you know, writers exclusively for adults, maybe, you know, aren't thinking so hard about the sort of moral or ethical effect that they'll have on their audience i mean i think i think that is true um amongst actually vast majority of children's writers they are i mean many of them have been teachers yeah um, so there's a few people like pullman was a teacher yeah, wasn't he I, it's almost Michael Rosen and so, quite yeah. difficult to find children's writers who haven't been at some stage or other connected with children and many of course are parents and there's some who are not but i think the it is true that once they've become writers for children, that what, what they are aware of, and I was aware of very quickly, is the importance of it. And I had a, an early insight into it, which I think a lot of writers have. I was a teacher at a primary school, and it was during the telling of stories, not the writing of them, the telling of stories, that I realised the power of them. I knew nothing in my classroom of year sixes um, that would hold the attention of everyone and engage us all in the same intellectual exercise there was nothing that worked better than a great book and it was the most marvelous moment and uh, every teacher knows this is the best bit about teaching is when you're doing something where there is a silence and everyone is joined in, in their imagination in this silence and that intensity is quite extraordinary with children when it happens with a great book you know something extraordinary is happening this unforgettable moment that's happening and maybe life-changing too. So then what happens, with me anyway, is that I ran out of good books to read and started making up and telling stories of my own. And then you suddenly realise that the telling of them is what's the point. It's the story, stupid. It's the power of the story. What's going to happen next? Your resentment of one character, your love of another. The, the way you lose yourself in a story was visible to me. 
And I think that also has happened to many, many writers for, for, for young people. They've witnessed the power of stories. And then those who stayed in the profession and stayed with um, working with young people, did you realize that these moments, the reading of a book, the telling of a story, the passion for one author, the passion for one book, can set people on a road to understanding and knowledge which otherwise would not have been there. And, and that's transforming. And then you know you're doing something that's sort of worthwhile. So yes, I guess children's writers do have this. I don't suggest they're all missionaries. They're not. They love what they're doing. They love making their poems, making their stories, making their illustrations. But they, I think most of them have witnessed by going into schools and seeing the, the open-mouthed, wide-eyed fascination that children have when it's working, how extraordinary experience it is for them and for the teller. Some children's writers, you know, I mean, I'd be interested to know what you think about that argument that would say, you know, it's really important that children's books contain, you know, a range of characters to represent, you know, the diversity of a given society. I mean, mm. you know, should a children's writer be criticised, say, for, you know, having sort of all white characters or no homosexual characters or no... I mean, the sort of idea that children's writers have a duty almost to sort of shape our view of the world in a particular way... Um, I mean, Philip Pullman, for instance, has been criticised in some quarters for producing what's something of as atheist propaganda, you know, because he's it's sort of a, quite a didactic in some respects. I think what's important is that we write about what we care about, and that's almost it. If you are trying to make yourself into some sort of way of reflecting the modern world because you think it's going to be good for children. By and large, I think that's a mistake. One of the wonderful things about this country in terms of its writing for children, and it's not the same in other countries, a lot of, of other countries, France, for instance, there are a lot of writers who are writing about what they feel children should be being taught about. And it comes across like that. Now, if the message is so lost in the story that the story comes first and the message comes through quietly, surreptitiously, fine. Dickens did that in Oliver Twist. What is it first and foremost? It's in a rattling good yarn. Why did he write it? Because he cared about the people that he was writing about. Now, if you're like that, then write those stories. But don't feel you've got to plonk in there a child of a particular ethnic mix because that might work well. What you have to do is to be interested in children of an ethnic mix of one sort or another, of a, a religious background of one sort or another, if that interests you, then write about it. But don't feel obliged that you, you must. There are other writers who are going to write about that. You can't be everything to everyone. So I, for instance, I, what am I? I'm white, I'm middle class. I grew up in the 1940s, 50s, 60s. I'm not going to pretend that I'm not that. That does not mean to say that my stories are not peopled with not just um, different cultures, there are many children of different backgrounds in my stories, but they're there for a reason, and they're not there to show my credentials as a, a, a liberal-minded writer. You say, you know, every child has a couple of books they point to that, that formed them, that set them on the path. What were yours? One was a writer, uh, first of all, and then I'll tell you a book. The first writer I ever became fond of and picked up every book she wrote was Enid Blyton. So you'll gather from that that I'm not, I wasn't the most literary of children. I far preferred playing rugby and climbing trees and 
stealing birds' eggs. I mean, there you are. That's the thing. You see, stealing birds' eggs. That's what I did as a child. Um, you couldn't write about that now, but you could because that's what we did. That's why there are so few thrushes around. Anyway, well, <laughs> come back to it. Enid Blyton was forbidden at home, and it was forbidden at school. It was thought to be, how shall I say, uh, I think my parents thought they didn't want their children to be seen reading Enid Blyton. I came from a very, very literary family. It was full of philosophers and historians, and Enid Blyton was not what you did. So I wasn't allowed to read it, so I did. And then at school, it was forbidden also, and so I read it under the blanket with a torch. There was no excitement. better way of getting children to read, is there? <laughs> so I read, I mean, so books. Five go to Smuggler's Top. I read when I was about seven or eight at my prep school by torchlight, and I read it again and again and again and again. What's good about it, and there is something good about it for a, for a kid reading, is that you wanted to turn the page. You, that's really all it's good for. You want to find out what's going to happen. And uh, I loved that. So that's the first thing to say, was that the first great writer I ever loved was Robert Louis Stevenson. And I think probably he's still my my hero writer. He's the person I most want to be. Um, so I read Treasure Island. And I'll tell you why Treasure Island was wonderful for me. It was the very first time I could identify completely with a child in a story. So Jim, Jim Hawkins in the story, um, was a boy of roughly the same age I was when I was reading it. And it is so well written that you become that boy. So I was in that barrel of apples, hiding, while this conspiracy was going on between these these mutineers, these, these, these vile people, one of whom I thought was pretty wonderful, and there they are, uh, ready to cut people's throat, and you're in this barrel of apples, and you're scared, Richard, and I just love that. I also loved it for another reason, being a seven or eight-year-old boy. There were no girls in it, so I didn't have to deal with that at all. There was lots of threat, and the sense of place was utterly wonderful. You know, the stockade and that island, the inn, all these things are so wonderfully described. And of course, when I grew up, I realised that the man is not just a writer of children's yarns. He is a man who can write dark novels for grown-up children, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and he can write travels books, travels in my donkey, or whatever it was. He was a poet, just the most extraordinary writer. So he's the person I most want to be. It's said often by writers for all ages that your, your childhood is your kind of hoard, the resource you plunder for all the subsequent work. Mm. Now, I mean, two of the big themes that seem to come through in your admittedly very voluminous work are, you know, war and the countryside and nature. And, you know, you said as a child there was sort of thrashes and your father was aware when you were young. I mean, how much would you say that your your work draws on or sort of plunders your childhood as a resource? A lot. I mean, I find myself in my books a lot. I don't mean to, but I do. The situations I find myself in. So... I was a child who spent a lot of time alone, not because people were horrible to me, but I went away to school, so there was a sense of, um, I think, quite early alienation almost from my home life. I had, I had to play games. I had a world of home and I had a world of school, and they were very, very separate. And I found that um, very difficult. So I suppose the notion of being without parents around you is quite natural to me when I'm writing stories and most children's stories seem to do better if there aren't parents around so in that sense it was a great great help to me the war thing is important because 
I did grow up at a time when the war had happened. So I was born in 43. I started um, in West London. I went to primary school in West London, St Cuthbert's and the Warwick Road. And to go to that school, you had to walk down Phil Beach Gardens, and there was a shop somewhere, I remember, on the corner. And we used to see this soldier sitting there um, with his cap and his dog. And he had one leg. And he did have his medals up. And I used to give him sweets from time to time. Lots of the kids did. And only money. We played in bomb sites. We haven't got a clue what the bomb sites were, but bit by bit by bit we realised that there'd been this thing called the war because it's what all the grown-ups talked about and cried about quite a lot. So on the mantelpiece in our sitting room there was this photograph of my uncle Peter who had been killed when he was 21 in the RAF, and I never met him, he was killed in 41, I think. And he was in this silver frame photograph, and there was always a poppy by it, and my mum used to cry on his birthday, and cry on November the 11th, and you realised that what had happened had, had torn this family apart by this one death, and there were an awful lot of families in the land like that. So then you realised that war destroyed buildings, took legs off people, it made uncles not be there who should have been there, and they were young, old, it's old people who die, not young people, and all these things gathered in your head. And then the other thing that gathered which was important was this notion that these people had been the heroes. Our heroes were not footballers, they were Spitfire pilots. And we had one, one man who visited us, who had been in the fleet air arm, he came to see us because he was a friend of mine mum and dad, a man called Eric Pierce, I think he's still alive. Anyway, I used to dread him coming because he had been badly burnt when his plane crashed and his, one half of his face was very badly scarred. And um, my mother always told me not to look and stare at Eric, but I, I did because you couldn't not. I did it for two reasons. First of all, I was fascinated, but secondly, he was one of the heroes. So there was this fascination for this whole thing, as well as an enormous respect for the people who'd gone and done it, and would I be brave enough to do that? All these things started churning around in my mind at the age of six, seven, eight, nine, I guess. So yeah, it left a huge effect on me, so that, it, that has never left me. I went to be a soldier when I left school because I thought I'd approve myself in the same fire. I know it sounds naive, but it's kind of what you do when you're 17. You decide to do what you should do, what you feel you like to do. And I had a friend who was going to do it as well, so join the army. So I went to Sandhurst. Uh, it didn't work out. I learned pretty quick that marching up and down is not what I want to do. I'll be shouted at by company sergeant majors and the Coldstream Guards. And they said awful things to you, terrible things to you. And then I did have one of these extraordinary moments. Um, I think they do happen in most people's lives. It's, it, it's not the road to Damascus. It's, uh, that's a sort of silly way of putting it. But there are moments when you realise that you've done something wrong or right. And in my case, I'd done something wrong. I was on exercise in 1962. It was a terrible winter. And it was snowing. <laughs> we were all in dugouts, I remember. And um, on exercise, I don't know how familiar you are. This, it, it's, it's war games, really. And um, there was an enemy, of course. And the enemy were a whole group of soldiers from the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders who mostly came from Glasgow. And if there was one species of people they all loathed, it was officer cadets. And 
it was snowy and we were in trenches and they were shouting things at us about what they'd do to us if they caught us and suddenly it wasn't funny and it wasn't an exercise and then I did remember as I was looking out across this wasteland that it wasn't a wasteland it was no man's land and <clears throat> there was this story which I knew about the Christmas truce 1914 and I thought well what am I doing here because actually when they got up on either side and they shook hands and they played a game of football and they drank schnapps or whiskey or whatever it was and it did happen that's what should happen between peoples not this stuff so there was a moment when I thought well I won't do this plus the fact that I was um, uh, I met this uh, girl who decided that I should think about things rather more deeply and so I did and left and we got married and there we are I'm stuck with that ever since. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good point on which to end. Michael Morpurgo, thank you very much for your time. A pleasure, thank you. And in this week's book section, we have Caroline Moore writing with fascinated attention about moths. Ferdinand Mount, with a similar lepidopterous eye, writes at length about the cabinet secretaries and the history of the cabinet office. Melanie McDonough on Catholics. Ian Wilson writes about Emmanuel Carreres strange auto-fictional memoir The Kingdom about his religious conversion Stephen Bailey writes about colour and we have a review of the new Ross Raisin novel and if you enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe on iTunes to get a new one every week